Volume 9, Chapter 4, Part 2 of Cecilia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Barony. Cecilia, Memoirs of an Heiress by Francis Burney. Volume 9, Chapter 4 A Wrangling, Part 2. A knock at the street door gave now a new interruption, and Mr. Delvile at length appeared. Cecilia, whom his sight could not fail to disconcert, felt doubly distressed by the unnecessary presence of Albany and Hobson. She regretted the absence of Mr. Monckton, who could easily have taken them away, for though without scruple she could herself have acquainted Mr. Hobson she had business, she dreaded offending Albany, whose esteem she was ambitious of obtaining. Mr. Delvile entered the room with an air stately and erect. He took off his hat, but deigned not to make the smallest inclination of his head, nor offered any excuse to Mr. Briggs for being past the hour of his appointment. But having advanced a few paces, without looking either to the right or left, said, "'As I have never acted, my coming may not perhaps be essential, but as my name is in the Dean's will—' and i have once or twice met the other executors mentioned in it i think it a duty i owe to my own heirs to prevent any possible future enquiry or trouble to them this speech was directly addressed to no one though meant to be attended to by every one and seemed proudly uttered as a mere apology to himself for not having declined the meeting Cecilia, though she recovered from her confusion by the help of her aversion to this self-sufficiency, made not any answer. Albany retired to a corner of the room. Mr. Hobson began to believe it was time for him to depart, and Mr. Briggs, thinking only of the quarrel in which he had separated with Mr. Delvile in the summer, stood swelling with venom, which he longed for an opportunity to spit out. Mr. Delvile, who regarded this silence as the effect of his awe-inspiring presence, became rather more complacent, but casting his eyes round the room, and perceiving the two strangers, he was visibly surprised, and looking at Cecilia for some explanation, seemed to stand suspended from the purpose of his visit till he heard one. Cecilia, earnest to have the business concluded, turned to Mr. Briggs, and said, "'Sir, here is pen and ink.' Are you to write, or am I? Or what is to be done? No, no, said he with a sneer. Give it t'other, all in our turn. Don't come before his grace, the right honourable Mr. Vompus. Before whom, sir? said Mr. Delvile, reddening. Before my lord Don Pedigree, answered Briggs, with a spiteful grin. Know him, may? Ever hear of such a person? Mr. Delvile coloured still deeper but turning contemptuously from him, disdained making any reply. Mr. Briggs, who now regarded him as a defeated man, said exultingly to Mr. Hobson, "'What do you stand here for, eh? Follow your marrow-bones! Don't see Squire high and mighty!' "'As to falling on my marrow-bones,' answered Mr. Hobson, "'it's what I shall do to no man, except he was the king himself, or the like of that, and going to make me Chancellor of the Exchequer.' or commissioner of excise. Not that I mean the gentleman any offence, but a man's a man, and for one man to worship another is quite out of law. 
Must, must, cried Briggs. Tell all his old grandads else. Keeps em in a roll, locks em in a closet, says his prayers to em. Can't live without em. Likes em better than cash. Wish had em here, pop em all in the sink. If your intention, sir, cried Mr. Delvile fiercely, is only to insult me, I am prepared for what measures I shall take. I decline seeing you in my own house, that I might not be under the same restraint as when it was my unfortunate lot to meet you last. Who cares? cried Briggs, with an air of defiance. What can do, eh? Poke me into a family vault, bind me atop of an old monument, tie me to a stinking carcass, make a corpse of me, and call it one of your famous cousins? For heaven's sake, Mr. Briggs, interrupted Cecilia, who saw that Mr. Delvile, trembling with passion, scarce refrained, lifting up his stick, be appeased, and let us finish our business. Albany now, hearing in Cecilia's voice the alarm with which she was seized, came forward and exclaimed, Whence this unmeaning dissension? To what purpose this irritating abuse? Oh, vain and foolish! Live ye so happily, last ye so long, that time and peace may thus be trifled with. There, there, cried Briggs, holding up his finger at Mr. Delvile. Have it now, got old Mr. Bounce upon you. Give you enough of it, promise you that. Restrain, continued Albany, this idle wrath, and if ye have ardent passions, employ them to nobler uses. Let them stimulate acts of virtue, let them animate deeds of beneficence. Oh, waste not spirits that may urge you to good, lead you to honour, warm you to charity, in poor and angry words, in unfriendly, unmanly debate. Mr. Delvile, whom from the approach of Albany had given him his whole attention, was struck with astonishment at this address, and almost petrified with wonder at his language and exhortations. "'Why, I must own,' said Mr. Hobson, "'as to this matter, I am much of the same mind myself, for quarrelling's a thing I don't uphold. Being it advances one no way, for what I say is this, if a man gets the better, he's only where he was before, and if he gets worsted, why, it's odds but the laugh's against him. So, if I may make bold to give my verdict, I would have one of these gentlemen take the other by the hand, and so put an end to bad words.' That's my maxim, and that's what I call being agreeable. Mr. Delvile, at the words one of these gentlemen take the other by the hand, looked scornfully upon Mr. Hobson, with a frown that expressed his highest indignation at being thus familiarly coupled with Mr. Briggs, and then, turning from him to Cecilia, haughtily said, Are these two persons, pointing towards Albany and Hobson, "'Waiting here to be witnesses to any transaction?' "'No, sir, no,' cried Hobson. "'I don't mean to intrude. I am going directly. "'So you can give me no insight, mum,' addressing Cecilia, "'as to where I might light upon Mr. Belfield.' "'Me? No,' cried she, much provoked by observing that Mr. Delvile suddenly looked at her. "'Well, mum, well, I mean no harm.' Only I hold it that the right way to hear of a young gentleman is to ask for him of a young lady. That's my maxim. Come, sir, to Mr. Briggs. You and I had like to have fallen out. But what I say is this. Let no man bear malice. That's my way. 
so I hope we part without ill blood. Ay, ay, said Mr. Briggs, giving him a nod. Well, then, added Hobson, I hope the good will may go round, and that not only you and I, but these two good old gentlemen will also lend a hand. Mr. Delvile was now at a loss which way to turn for very rage, but after looking at every one with a face flaming with ire, he said to Cecilia, "'If you have collected together these persons for the purpose of affronting me, I must beg you to remember I am not one to be affronted with impunity.' Cecilia, half frightened, was beginning an answer that disclaimed any such intention, when Albany, with the most indignant energy, called out, O oh, pride of heart, with littleness of soul! Check this vile arrogance, too vain for man, and spare to others some part of that lenity thou nourishest for thyself, or justly bestow on thyself that contempt thou nourishest for others. And with these words he sternly left the house. The thunderstruck Mr. Delvile began now to fancy that all the demons of torment were designedly let loose upon him, and his surprise and resentment operated so powerfully that it was only in broken sentences he could express either. "'Very extraordinary! A new method of conduct! Liberties to which I am not much used! Impertinences I shall not hastily forget! Treatment that would scarce be pardonable to a person wholly unknown!' "'Why, indeed, sir,' said Hobson, "'I can't but say it was rather a cut-up, but the old gentleman is what one may call a genius, which makes it a little excusable, for he does things all his own way, and I am told it's the same thing who he speaks to, so he can but find fault, and that.' "'Sir,' interrupted the still more highly offended Mr. Delvile, "'what you?' may be told, is extremely immaterial to me, and I must take the liberty to hint at you a conversation of this easy kind is not what I am much in practice in hearing. Sir, I ask pardon, said Hobson. I meant nothing but what was agreeable. However, I have done, and I wish you good day. Your humble servant, mum, and I hope, sir— to Mr. Briggs, you won't begin bad words again. No, no, said Briggs, ready to make up, all at end, only don't much like Spain, that's all, winking significantly, nor aren't over fond of a skeleton. Mr. Hobson now retired, and Mr. Delvile and Mr. Briggs, being both wearied and both in haste to have done, settled in about five minutes all for which they met after passing more than an hour in agreeing what that was. Mr. Briggs, then, saying he had an engagement upon business, declined settling his own accounts till another time, but promised to see Cecilia again soon, and added, "'Be sure take care of that old Mr. Bounce, cracked in the noddle. See that with half an eye. Better not trust him. Break out some day, do you a mischief?' He then went away, but while the parlour-door was still open, to the no little surprise of Cecilia, the servant announced Mr. Belfield. He hardly entered the room, and his countenance spoke haste and eagerness. "'I have this moment, madam,' he said, "'been informed a complaint has been lodged against me here, and I could not rest till I had the honour of assuring you that though I have been rather dilatory, I have not neglected my appointment, 
nor has the condescension of your interference been thrown away. He then bowed, shut the door, and ran off. Cecilia, though happy to understand by this speech that he was actually restored to his family, was sorry at these repeated intrusions in the presence of Mr. Delvile, who was now the only one that remained. She expected every instant that he would ring for his chair, which he kept in waiting, but after a pause of some continuance, to her equal surprise and disturbance, he made the following speech. "'As it is probable, I am now for the last time alone with you, mum, and as it is certain we shall meet no more upon business, I cannot, in justice to my own character, and to the respect I retain for the memory of the dean, your uncle, take a final leave of the office with which he was pleased to invest me, without first fulfilling my own ideas of the duty it requires from me, by giving you some counsel relating to your future establishment." This was not a preface much to enliven Cecilia. It prepared her for such speeches as she was least willing to hear, and gave to her the mixed and painful sensation of spirits depressed, with pride alarmed. "'My numerous engagements,' he continued, "'and the approbation of my time, already settled, to their various claims, must make me brief in what I have to represent, and somewhat perhaps abrupt in coming to the purpose, but that you will excuse.' Cecilia disdained to humour this arrogance by any compliments or concessions. She was silent, therefore, and when they were both seated, he went on. "'You are now at a time of life when it is natural for young women to wish for some connection, and the largeness of your fortune will remove from you such difficulties as prove bars to the pretensions, in this expensive age, of those who possess not such advantages.' It would have been some pleasure to me, while I yet considered you as my ward, to have seen you properly disposed of, but as that time is past, I can only give you some general advice, which you may follow or neglect as you think fit. By giving it I shall satisfy myself. For the rest, I am not responsible." He paused. But Cecilia felt less and less inclination to make use of the opportunity by speaking in her turn. Yet though, as I just now hinted, young women of large fortunes may have little trouble in finding themselves establishments, they ought not, therefore, to trifle when proper ones are in their power, nor suppose themselves equal to any they may chance to desire. Cecilia coloured high at this pointed reprehension, but feeling her disgust every moment increase, determined to sustain herself with dignity, and at least not suffer him to perceive the triumph of his ostentation and rudeness. "'The proposals,' he continued, "'of the Earl of Ernolf had always my approbation. It was certainly an ill-judged thing to neglect such an opportunity of being honourably settled.' The clause of the name was, to him, immaterial, since his own name half a century ago was unheard of, and since he is himself only known by his title. He is still, however, I have authority to acquaint you, perfectly well disposed to renew his application to you." "'I am sorry, sir,' said Cecilia coldly, "'to hear it.' "'You have perhaps some better offer in view?' "'No, sir.' cried she, with spirit, 
not even in desire. Am I then to infer that some inferior offer has more chance of your approbation? There is no reason, sir, to infer anything. I am content with my actual situation, and have, at present, neither prospect nor intention of changing it. I perceive, but without surprise, your unwillingness to discuss the subject, nor do I mean to press it. I shall merely offer to your consideration one caution, and then relieve you from my presence. Young women of ample fortunes, who are early independent, are sometimes apt to presume they may do everything with impunity, but they are mistaken. They are as liable to censure as those who are wholly unprovided for. I hope, sir, said Cecilia, staring, this, at least, is a caution rather drawn from my situation than my behaviour. I mean not, mum, narrowly to go into or investigate the subject. What I have said you may make your own use of. I have only to observe further that when young women at your time of life are at all negligent of so nice a thing as reputation, they commonly live to repent it. He then arose to go, but Cecilia, not more offended than amazed, said, I must beg, sir, you will explain yourself. Certainly this matter, he answered, must be immaterial to me, yet— as I have once been your guardian by the nomination of the dean your uncle, I cannot forbear making an effort towards preventing any indiscretion, and frequent visits to a young man. Good God, sir! interrupted Cecilia. What is it you mean? It can certainly, as I said before, be nothing to me, though I should be glad to see you in better hands but I cannot suppose you have been led to take such steps without some serious plan, and I would advise you, without loss of time, to think better of what you are about. Should I think, sir, to eternity, cried Cecilia, I could never conjecture what you mean. You may not choose, said he proudly, to understand me, but I have done. If it had been in my power to have interfered in your service with my Lord Durford, notwithstanding my reluctance to being involved in any fresh employment, I should have made a point of not refusing it. But this young man is nobody, a very imprudent connection. What young man, sir? Nay, I know nothing of him. It is by no means likely I should. But as I had already been informed of your attention to him, the corroborating incidents of my servants following you to his house, his friends seeking him at yours, and his own waiting upon you this morning, were not well calculated to make me withdraw my credence to it. Is it then, Mr. Belfield, sir, concerning whom you draw these inferences, from circumstances the most accidental and unmeaning? "'It is by no means my practice,' cried he, haughtily, and with evident marks of high displeasure at this speech, "'to believe anything lightly, or without even questionable authority. What once, therefore, I have credited, I do not often find erroneous. Mistake not, however, what I have said into supposing I have any objection to your marrying. On the contrary,' 
It had been for the honour of my family had you been married a year ago. I should not then have suffered the degradation of seeing a son of the first expectations in the kingdom upon the point of renouncing his birth, nor a woman of the first distinction ruined in her health and broken for ever in her constitution. The emotions of Cecilia at this speech were too powerful for concealment. Her colour varied, now reddening with indignation, now turning pale with apprehension. She arose, she trembled and sat down. She arose again, but not knowing what to say or what to do, again sat down. Mr. Delvile, then, making a stiff bow, wished her good morning. "'Do not go, sir,' cried she, in faltering accents. "'Let me at least convince you of the mistake with regard to Mr. Belfield.' "'My mistakes, ma'am,' said he, with a contemptuous smile, "'are perhaps not easily convicted.' and I may possibly labour under others that would give you no less trouble. It may therefore be better to avoid any further disquisition. No, not better, answered she, again recovering her courage from this fresh provocation. I fear no disquisition. On the contrary, it is my interest to solicit one. This intrepidity in a young woman, said he ironically, is certainly very commendable, and doubtless, as you are your own mistress, your having run out great part of your fortune is nothing beyond what you have a right to do. Me! cried Cecilia, astonished. Run out great part of my fortune? Perhaps that is another mistake. I have not often been so unfortunate, and you are not, then, in debt— in debt, sir? Nay, I have no intention to inquire into your affairs. Good morning to you, ma'am. I beg, I entreat, sir, that you will stop. Make me at least understand what you mean, whether you deign to hear my justification or not. Oh, I am mistaken, it seems, misinformed, deceived, and you have neither spent more than you have received, nor taken up money of Jews. Your minority has been clear of debts, and your fortune, now you are of age, will be free from encumbrances. Cecilia, who now began to understand him, eagerly answered, Do you mean, sir, the money which I took up last spring? Oh, no, by no means. I conceive the whole to be a mistake. And he went to the door. Hear me but a moment, sir, cried she hastily, following him. Since you know of that transaction, do not refuse to listen to its occasion. I took up the money for Mr. Harrel. It was all and solely for him. For Mr. Harrel, was it? said he, with an air of supercilious incredulity. That was rather an unlucky step. Your servant, mum. And he opened the door. You will not hear me, then. You will not credit me, cried she in the cruellest agitation. Some other time, mum. At present my avocations are too numerous to permit me. And again, stiffly bowing, he called to his servants, who were waiting in the hall, and put himself into his chair. End of chapter 4 Recorded by Barony